Welcome to Say What Needs Saying. I'm Zach. I'm Brandon. And today we have with us two Black police officers that are going to give their perspectives on a number of issues that are incredibly important and pertinent today. Today we have with us Ben and Delvan. Just wanted to turn it over to you guys to give a little bit of an introduction and, and bio. So I guess we could start with Ben and then move on to Delvan. All right. Yeah, I'm Ben. Um, I'm actually a pretty brand new officer. I actually just finished my last shift at 7 a.m. this morning um, a field training. So starting tomorrow night, I'm moving on to probation, police officer in Columbus, Ohio. Yeah, so I'm not, not going to call myself an expert, but <laughs> I at least think I'll be able to bring some sort of perspective to the conversation. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us, Ben. And for, for those of you who are listening in later, uh, we're recording this at 10 a.m. <laughs> so we really appreciate you coming in just hours after the end of your last shift. So yeah, no problem. Really, gl really glad you could join us. Uh, Delvon? Yeah, I'm Delvon. I am a police officer for one of the major cities of Missouri. I'm not allowed to say where per my department, but yeah, I do appreciate that too, Ben, because I'm a night watch guy myself. So I can understand uh, that could be a little difficult. Um, I've been on about four years and I work in a pretty, I work in what, I guess what most people would probably call the ghettos, but it's pretty racially divided area. So I've been able to see a lot, have a lot of conversations and hopefully I can bring some to the table here. Yeah. Thank you too for joining us. Uh, hopefully we can get some, some questions answered, some shared perspectives. You know, there's, there's a lot going on today that the, the public is, very vocal about um, and we felt that it was important to also get the perspective of law enforcement and specifically um, you know being black and a police officer you guys have a unique perspective that you can offer to a lot of these issues and at least the issues that are not being addressed on a public forum so we're trying to provide that forum so we can allow for at least what needs to be said to be heard and i guess as far as you know the podcast goes we want always want we at least want the perspectives of everyone to be heard and that's exactly why we even forced this idea in the first place so i guess if we're gonna go ahead and start i guess uh ben you could go first or we can you know whoever feels um or whoever feels wants to jump uh what is your i guess your take on the whole george floyd cases from you know brianna taylor the blake cases what what's your perspective on that um okay yeah i start with the george floyd at least so mm -hmm. When that actually happened, I was still in the academy. And I think in, in my personal experience, the George Floyd's death and everything was something that almost immediately, um, it seemed like police officers around the country almost immediately condemned uh, the circumstances under which he died. I think it was pretty obvious, at least around the police officers that I was around, there's really no excuse for the way that he died, you know, being kept in that position, that officer putting all his weight on his neck and everything for such a long time, especially with other officers there, it's really something that wouldn't have happened here just because the way that we're trained, you're not even supposed to leave someone just lying down for extended amount of time, let alone putting your weight on them. And I think that the reaction from the public, uh, I think it was kind of an overreaction in terms of this was probably the first time where, you know, someone had died in police custody and immediately everyone was like, oh, no, that was wrong. That should not have happened. You know, I think he got fired the next day, got charged pretty quickly afterwards. So I personally didn't really expect the backlash, uh, the magnitude that police officers around the country really kind of received a lot of, I don't know, a lot of flack for something that most of us didn't support. I don't know if it's the same, like if that's the same in Missouri. I don't know. You want to kind of let me know how police officers there reacted to it? Yeah. So initially when George Floyd happened, we were all pretty much in shock. We couldn't believe what just happened. We especially couldn't believe it was just recorded for nine minutes and right. that was going to be on the internet. That was insane. You know, and my, I know the excuses that those officers were using were, look, he wanted to lay down. Look, he wanted to be here, at least where I work at. If you're under arrest, you know, you're under arrest. I'm going to sit you up. I'm going to put you where you need to be. If you need to be in a certain position, fine. I'm going to call EMS and they can put you in that position because I'm not going to leave you in a position that I think could hurt you in the long run. 
So we were all shocked that that happened. And, you know, kind of segueing into Jacob Blake, I remember sitting in the staging area for the riot control mm-hmm. and we watched Jacob Blake unfold on live TV. Well, it wasn't live, but you know what I'm saying? It was being broadcasted and so many officers just put their hands in their head and they were so upset because George Floyd rats were just starting to kind of not say die down, but they were getting a lot less intense. And then boom, like just Jacob Blake happened. And it was just insane to start watching all that unfold. And even though the Jacob Blake one, I kind of understood more, slightly more than George Floyd and, and Brianna Taylor, it, it was still just, it, it was an incredible moment. But the, the George Floyd case was, I mean, so many of my officers were like, that's unacceptable. You know, we yeah. wouldn't, we would never have kneeled on somebody for, you know, that long. The only time I've ever seen an officer kneel on somebody is when it's a resisting and he's all by himself and he's waiting for backup. But when backup gets there, we pick that guy up. We set him in one of the police cruisers or, you know, the paddy wagon. You know, I use paddy wagon. It's a general term. We call it something different, but everybody knows what a paddy wagon is. Mm-hmm. We put him in the paddy wagon and, you know, it's done. But, yeah, that was that was insane to to watch unfold, especially the at the backlash, which was astronomical. That's a good point, you know, that they did kind of happen back to back to back, and it led to the the movement, if you will, just growing and gaining more traction with each incident. Ben, you brought up a good point about training in that your department, uh, your area is trained very differently than this. One of the broad narratives going around these cases is the idea of systemic racism in police forces, um, and more broadly, systemic racism in America, but specifically systemic or systematic racism in police forces across the country. You know, the thought that is prevailing in a lot of circles is that these cases, whether it be Jacob Blake, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, or going back further to other cases, you know, Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, whoever else you want to point to as a case, as evidence of a larger problem of systemic or systematic racism in the country and in police force. I wanted to get your guys' thoughts on that and whether or not you think that exists, uh, whether or not you think that is the issue, or whether you think it's something else akin to a training issue or something else completely unrelated. Uh, Yeah, sure. So uh, a lot of these recent incidents, like with George Floyd, Jacob Blake and everything, you do have white officers and a victim or suspect that is Black. As far I think that in, for Jacob Blake, I think it was like Kenosha, Wisconsin. Right. Uh, pretty sure that's yeah. a, a small department. I think that if you take, you know, that same situation and probably take you know, officers from my department or, you know, probably from a bigger department anywhere, the training that they receive is going to be a lot more. And that's the thing in terms of training. Big cities can afford to, you know, send their officers to full-time academies where they're pretty much their only job is to learn how to do the job. Uh, smaller towns have... You know, they might have officers that went to like a academy that's just after hours in conjunction with a full time job. And I think that, yeah, it is an issue of training in terms of being able to control a suspect, maybe not even letting it get to that point. And then I also think that some of these situations arise because officers are kind of scared to do their job and they kind of let the situation grow and get out of hand to the point where, you know, they might feel that deadly force is the only option available to them. As far as racism, I don't know. I mean, in my experience so far, I haven't met, you know, any officers that did this job and said, oh, yeah, I just want to beat the shit out of black people. Sorry. Yeah, I, I don't think that anyone, you know, comes to this job because they, they're out here wanting to hunt a certain group of people or a certain type of people. Right. Um, and I think that, you know, racism isn't something that could be eradicated from any job, any career field. And I don't think that you can really screen out of applicants based on that. But I do know that most big departments, at least, have extensive background checks, psychological tests, and evaluations. I think that they're going to try to screen out a lot of that beforehand. But at the end of the day, police officers are human beings, just like any other profession. Mm -hmm. So you're going to have some of that slip through. I wouldn't say, I mean, systemic is a word that's thrown around a lot. 
And mm-hmm. I just, I personally don't think that's the case, not any more than any other career field or job. Yeah. So, you know, I think the first problem is, and I've always said this one, there's no national guideline for police training. It's left up to not just even states, but municipalities and cities. You know, people say, well, please need more training. And my thing is, well, you have to identify what departments need what training. So where I work as a major city, I don't get the same kind of training as a rural town that borders a lake or a major river because they might have extensive training in water rescue. I don't get that kind of training. Mm-hmm. So the the idea of just overall police training overhaul seems to be what's kind of really damaging some of the conversation because some departments don't know how to really adjust that training because they don't you know a lot of these things are taking place in big cities not really rural towns so i think that there needs to be number one a a national mandated training there needs to be a set requirement you have to train in these set areas and then you can train in your little your little you know miscellaneous specific areas that are you know specialized to your town or your city another thing with training is you know, a big thing that I've really noticed working as a major city officer versus watching my county officers or my more rural officers is call volume. Even after academy, when you go on your field training, that's your time to get exposed to the public. That's your time to get exposed to the types of assignments you'll be handling in your, you know, your beat, your area, wherever you may be working. And all areas are different. So the thing that I've really noticed is that I, as a major city officer, I've encountered more assignments than let's say my 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 county individuals you know what what they handle in a day or what they handle in a week I handle in a day and the, that's the, those are literal numbers you know they've hand, they'll handle they'll handle 80 calls in in a week while I'm handling 40 50 calls in a day and those calls are varying from drug overdoses to violent and combative individuals to domestics to shootings and it, you know, it, so I, I think that as well on top of training, you have to look at, you know, it's a perishable skill. The training is if you're not using certain training, then it's going to perish. And when certain events happen, like I think what happened with Jacob Blake, um, I think that officers kind of lose, you know, the the base fundamental training that they were given because they haven't probably used that kind of training in a while. Um, you know, so like somebody getting into a resisting where I work at looks different than a resist than a resisting of arrest in a rural town in Missouri. Um, because I work in a major city, we're used to that. We're used to, you go to affect an arrest and somebody might not want to go to jail. And, and so there's a resisting, but we handle it a lot differently. And that's kind of what got us. And especially when we saw Jacob Blake, you know, a lot of the tactics being used, we were like, that's, a lot, of, a lot of my fellow officers were like, those guys were not ready for whatever they were trying to do. And I, I honestly could agree. And, you know, kind of segueing into the racism, you know, I've been hearing a lot about systemic racism. And my whole thing about the racism thing is this. There's a majority of Caucasian individuals in this country, which means that a majority of any profession will be white dominant. You can't really fix those numbers. Well, unless you start taking people's jobs. Now, these people who now these the people who are Caucasian, they have to police in areas that are predominantly black because there's just there's just more Caucasian individuals. So I think that you're going to have instances where white officers encounter black people or Hispanic people or any minority of person, and it could escalate into violence. And what we have to understand is that just because one person's skin color is white and one person's skin color is darker does not mean that it's racism. I've always told people, if you believe the encounter was racist, that's up to us to prove the encounter is racist, which means we have to look at that officer's prior arrest. We look at that officer's interactions. We look at that officer's disciplinary tactics. Is that officer working in a, you know, 90% white area, but he's ticketing, you know, at 80, 80% African-Americans within the area? You know, we have to look at other statistics, which the FBI does look at, to, in order to prove that this person might have been acting with discrimination or racist intent or something of that nature. Now, I've always told people this about systemic racism is, for me personally, I don't think systemic racism exists. Actually, I actually think that there's systematic benefits, and there, there are actually more today than there were even five years ago for minority individuals. Now, 
I'm not going to sit here and say that racism doesn't exist or that, you know, that there couldn't be a potential for a system or, you know, a person in power to abuse their authority, but you would need to prove that. And then additionally, if there is a, if there is a racist system within our government, we need to look at it in a microscope. So when I say that, I always say we need to be able to, you need to identify to me what's racist about a law, a system of government, or an individual, and then we can tackle it. But I just can't yell systemic racism and throw it at the wall and hope it sticks because then no one's going to know what I'm talking about. So those are kind of my thoughts about just a few of those things. Yeah, you raised some, you both raised some good points. Um, so on the, on the note of training, you both kind of touched on either the local training or the, the federal role in training. So what do you think the, the federal government's role is in, or should be rather, in training police? Because obviously right now, they're, like you said, there's very little role that they play. There really isn't much of a national standard, but you also brought up that there's a wide variety of different circumstances that cops in different areas wind up encountering. And then, you know, if you don't use the training you get, then you're not going to benefit from it. What do you feel is the responsibility of the federal or national training? And then where do you feel like the, the local or state or municipality uh, training comes in as, as far as what elements of police training they should be more responsible for? So I think that personally, there shouldn't really be a federal, like I guess, federal minimum or federal baselines for training, just because this is a huge country and it's so diverse. There's so many different jurisdictions. And yeah, like was mentioned earlier, a police officer that's working in the inner city in a big city is going to have very different experiences than, you know, someone that's working out in a rural area or even like a suburban area. I think that training should be left to the states. And I think for the most part, um, I mean, I don't really have that much experience outside of Ohio, but I know there's like minimum state required hours and topics that have to be covered on the state level here in Ohio. And I think it should be kept like that. I really don't see how federal guidelines are going to change anything or make things better. And then I know that a lot of people nowadays are saying that education is a point that police officers should be way more educated and that's going to change systemic racism. And I don't really think there's any evidence to support the fact that a college degree alone is going to make someone less racist if that's really what the issue is. So that's just how I feel. I think it should be left up to the states. But even then, um, even within a state, you're going to have police officers, you know, you're going to have like your sheriff's deputies, your inner city cops, suburban police officers. It's just going to be way different. I don't think that you can really, there's not like a one size fits all, you know, if you teach your officers this, everything's going to be fine. And I, I can agree with that as well. I think as far as the federal government coming in, I think that the feds should come in for funding. If departments can't afford to reasonably do things like, um, you know, like body cams, you know, body cams are very, very expensive to store that amount of data is expensive. The equipment's expensive. I think the federal government should step in and should assist departments in meeting, you know, those kind of requirements. I also think the federal government should have certain mandates, like that all officers should have body cams. Um, I think that the federal government should have a mandate for use of force training and the use of force tree, because all departments have different use of force. So when I say that is, some departments have, okay, and your, and your use of force you know, you, the first step is maybe to use mace. And then the second step is maybe to go hands-on. And then the third step is maybe the taser. And then the fourth step is the baton. And then the fifth step is deadly force. And, you know, you can, uh, you know, in police training, so you can kind of skip to any one of, the, any one of those depending on the situation, but, but, but all departments have different uses of force. Some departments say, hey, tase them first. See if you can gain compliance by tasing them and putting them in handcuffs. If not, then mace them, then go to hands, then go to baton. So, the use of force is it's all over the place. And I, I've talked to a lot of different officers, not only on my podcast, but just kind of like through working. It's just all over the place. But I don't think that the federal government really has a place in training only because the federal government doesn't understand what a city might need, what a municipality might need. But I don't think there's anything wrong with the federal government. And well, actually, I'm going to touch on Ben said. He's right, though. Most states, actually, I think all states do have 
through their licensing, every year officers have to meet a certain amount of hours in each category, whether it's, you know, it's um, racial bias or use of force, uh, defensive tactics, firearms. There's there's a, very, there's a variety of, of things. I know a lot, like for us, like we have legal law, you have to meet so many hours of legal law. So there's a variety of topics that you have to meet per year in order to keep your license. If you don't, they'll suspend it. So I think the federal government should be more in the business of just making sure those things are compliant. And then maybe just kind of double checking after states, you know, if an officer receives an excessive force complaint, maybe the federal government will look at it and say, okay, well, let's just look at it. You know, we're not, we're not in the business of going to be punishing or firing, but we'll look at it, kind of make a note of it and we'll see what happens. And then something else I think Ben touched on is, uh, you know, education for police officers. You know, I've been seeing a lot of that as well. People, I've heard a lot of people tell me, well, we think police officers have social work degrees. Well, there's a reason why we're not social workers. And there's a reason why social workers aren't police officers. Um, (laughs) There's a, you know, I agree with Ben though. There's no evidence to support that. Well, if I have a four-year degree, then I'm more equipped than the army veteran. There's a reason why police departments don't, they'll take you whether you're an army vet, you have a degree, you don't have a degree. A lot of departments actually think it's easier to train people who aren't vets, who don't have degrees, because you don't have certain fundamental trainings. They don't have to break it down and rebuild it up in uh, in your mind. Books don't quite equal the real thing. And I think that I'd rather take an officer who's never seen a college room in his life, but knows his job and knows how to be safe and knows how to talk to people and maybe even comes from the neighborhood and knows how to you know, throw some slang around to kind of get his way rather than an overeducated individual who might be seen sometimes, especially where I work, might be seen as talking down to somebody, might be seen as with their nose in the sky. So those are things to always think about when I when I hear those arguments. I, I completely agree. So a couple of points that really at least piqued my interest um, when my father and I have these conversations, they say the officers like give regards to better educating the officers when dealing with these situations. He was saying the officers nowadays need to, I guess, walk the beat, which was his term is to do exactly what you said, to understand the slang, to understand the environment, get to know the community around, you know, what's the ins and outs, who's the good guys, who's the bad guy, so to speak. And I feel as if that is a component I guess not talked about, but it's also not a perspective that's valued in places that are not inner cities. Like I'm from Brooklyn, New York. So walking the beat, I know officers' names. Like I, I see regular officers, I say hello. And that establishes the community feel or at least attempts to establish that trust. In regards to, you know, I just moved out here to Columbus, but in regards to like Berea, Ohio, for example, I don't think that's necessary because I don't think a lot of people is walking the beat or at least walking in the, you know, will hang out on the sidewalk in, you know, rural Ohio. One thing that you definitely said was uh, was interesting was the federal government mandate for police funding. And I haven't heard anyone else say that perspective. Uh, so granted, we're still hovering around this idea of training. Um, and I'm sure you've heard many people say, you know, defund the police and that's associated with Black Lives Matter. But then if you ask the perspective of higher, I guess, higher leaders of Black Lives Matter, they echo the sentiment that, you know, LA had the same, just had a similar situation in regards to they felt as if, that the department as a whole needs to almost like a revamp. So they quote unquote dis- disassembled that department and re- I guess reassembled it. And then you have the other perspective that says, we're not necessarily saying defund, but we're saying reallocate funds. And some actual people are saying completely strip the funding of the departments, but I definitely see the purpose of training because another perspective I think Ben brought up was that you know, places with our bigger cities would have more funds allocated to them compared to smaller towns. In regards to defunding the police overall or just hearing that what's the first thing that comes to your head uh either of you when you hear that i'll take this one the first thing that comes to my head is all first responders will suffer and when i say that you know the community would really suffer if you defund the police and you know here's why there's three really big reasons one you're really going to affect your firefighters and ems well i guess i'll use ambulance not i think on the on of all places use ems i'm sure they do but just in case when you have a scene that requires EMS or firefighters, they sometimes won't go unless the police go first and make sure that the scene is safe for them. Make sure there's no active disturbances. There's no, you know, armed individuals. There's no one who's going to put them in danger because ultimately firefighters and ambulance drivers are not equipped to deal with 
combative subjects. That's why if that happens, they call us immediately. They, you know, they don't have the tools to safely um, engage an individual and subdue them. You know, the police, that's what we're here for. We're here to assist them in combat when they have combative situations. So if you defund the police, what does that mean? Well, if you take away funding and you reallocate it, I mean, that sounds fine in a vacuum, but you're going to pay for what you get. So if you're taking, and I know from where I work, some of our funds have been taken and we're seeing that backlash now too. We're seeing there's not enough officers. We're seeing that there's not a, there's too many calls for how many people are actually on the street right now working. And to me, that's dangerous for the public because when there's a call that requires EMS or firefighters and we're all on assignments, no one else is coming until one of us is free. And we just can't rush to get to wherever we're, I mean, we have to hand, you have to handle one assignment at a time. When I hear that, I immediately think that's dangerous for the public. It's also dangerous for the public because, like I said, you're going to pay for what you get. If you take away funding, how are these departments going to afford training? You know, training isn't cheap and it's not easy. Uh, you have to train an entire department of people. For my department, it's about 1,200 individuals. That's a lot of people. Oh, you have to pay them. Sometimes you have to pay them overtime. You have to pay, first, you have to pay us. You have to pay me either overtime to go. Uh, I can't just go for free. And then I, you know, like I said, I work in a big city, so we have the affordability of lots of colleges. So they actually pay lots of doctors, psychiatrists, they pay a lot of specialized people to come in and really sit down and talk with us about mental health, how to engage, how to engage certain types of mental illnesses. And I can't imagine that that's cheap to have basically a quote unquote expert come and talk to so many people over so many weeks for five days a week during normal business hour, I can't imagine that's cheap on any department, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think that training will suffer, you know, in a world where you're, where you're crying for more heavily trained, more heavily educated officers, I think you're going to end up getting a lower product if you end up cutting funding. That's just where I kind of stand. Yeah. So I think you definitely brought up a great point, which I think a lot of people don't know is about like, uh, you know, fire um, and medics and stuff. Yeah, it's, it's exactly right. When we get a lot of calls for service, and pe some people might just only want an ambulance to come in and treat them, depending on what they say or what's heard in the background, they're going to stage. They're going to stage like down the street or you know, mm -hmm. a block or two away and wait for the police to get there to make sure that everything's okay. If there's a shortage of officers or, you know, if we're all tied up, you know, across the precinct working or shooting or something like that, fire is not going to go in. They're just going to sit there and wait. And whoever called for help kind of just going to be a little bit out of luck because there's not enough officers to go there. Fire's not going to drive in if they don't feel safe. They don't want to get shot or hurt or caught in the middle of some crazy domestic situation. So, yeah, I mean, when I, I know when I hear when I first heard defund the police, I thought it sounded exactly what it sounded like. Take money away from the police. And then you have some people that are saying, oh, no, defund just means that we rely on the police for too many things. We're going to take money away from them and reallocate it to other sources. And I think a lot of people talk about sending in social workers, psychologists to certain situations. But I think a lot of those people that are saying that don't really understand the reality of the situation. If someone's suicidal, they say they have a gun or they say they have a knife. No social worker or psychologist is going to want to be sent there by themselves. You're going to need the police there also. That's just a fact. And there's a lot of different situations and a lot of different types of calls where the police have to go. So, yeah, I think that defunding the police, taking money away is essentially going to hurt the people that need the police the most. Right. And, you know, kind of with that, and I know this has been a this has been a goofy little thing I've heard. It's called refund. It, it's uh, not refund, extended fund the police. Are, it's something on Twitter, but. <laughs> But my whole thing is, is if people really want that, right? And I'm not against as an officer, they're being on-call social workers, you know, they're being on-call psychiatrists, or I'm not against any of that. I don't particularly want them in my squad car. I think that's, I've heard people say, you know, we'll put them in the police car. I say, well, no, that's dangerous. Uh, Cause then I have to babysit <laughs> another yeah. individual. I don't want to do that. No more ride-alongs, huh? <laughs> yeah i mean i'll take a ride along but to have another person another professional there uh but if you want to i always told people why don't you just extend the funding to the police and then mandate the certain mandate those funds to say hey we're going to give you x amount of money with that much money 
you as a department, you have to hire a unit of social workers and they have to go and you have to cover all of your shifts with these social workers. You need to give them somewhere that they can, you know, give them an office and give them all their little things that they need. But we're going to give you this amount of money for that. Now we're going to give you this amount of money for on-call psychiatrists. Your officers can now call a psychiatrist. We're also going to give you this. We're also going to give you that. But this money has to be used for X, Y, Z, this, that, and the third. You just can't use it to buy new tires. You can't use it to, you know, get new fancy roof lights. No, no, no. This money goes for this service, that service, and that service. That was kind of a solution I had thrown out once on, on a platform, but was that was quickly shot down by some other people. But <laughs> I figured I'd give it a gamble. But I've always been a – I've never really been a fan of defunding. And I'm not even saying just give the police more money, just, you know, in a, just throw money at the police. No, no. Like I said, give them money to get these certain individuals and then tell them you have to use this money to pay them. You have to use this money for their equipment. You have to use this money to give them an office, transportation, gas. So that's kind of a thought I, I had about sort of the reverse of defunding the police. I mean, I agree. I think that any concept to remove, because I, I grew up in Brooklyn, so I and, and many other cities throughout you know the East Coast. So I know the importance of that 911 call. And if there's any a time where granted the times and how fast they get out to those neighborhoods are up for debate, but in <laughs> um in regards to the quality of who's coming out, I don't want any type of money taken away from the people who can uh, relieve whatever situation I'm dealing with when I go to this number. So on that sentiment, I completely agree with you. Yeah, I, I also agree. I think that defunding the police isn't quite the answer. Um, I, I think that police do need more funding to put thing, toward things like more training and, and things like that. This has obviously led to a lot of controversy. Um, there are people that are very strongly for defunding the police, very strongly against defunding the police. And it has kind of tacked on a new layer of controversy to another movement, the Back the Blue movement and the Thin Blue Line and things of that nature, right? To it to the point where it now has two very different meanings to people. Um, so a lot of people look at the thin blue line and the back the blue movement as a good thing. You know, you're supporting our police officers. You are supporting increasing funding so that they can get more training, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe they have a family member or friend that is police. Um, but then you have another sect of people who see it almost the exact opposite, right? A lot of people nowadays seem to be at least, at least in the Twitter sphere and Facebook and you know the social media version of the world. It, it seems like a lot of people see the thin blue line as almost an awful or hateful symbol now and to where there's this again stark divide between the supporters of that movement and those who are against it i wanted to get your guys thoughts on the movement in general you know what the thin blue line means to you um what the back the blue movement means to you and what what you would have to say to the people who may see it more negatively or see it in a less positive light you know, I would start off by saying, so it, it means two things to me. And I've, I've always said this, you know, back the blue, the thin blue line, blue lives, all that good stuff. You know, it first and foremost, at least for me, my department where I am, it's respect given to those who have fallen in the line of duty. And that's what it will always stand for. Those who have, you know, whether you've worn the flag on your outfit, whether it's on your vehicle, but, you know, your life was taken on duty and in action that was a violence while you're trying to defend or hopefully go defend, uh, you know, another member of the population, because you know, I know no one ever wants to talk about it. And I, you know, I mentioned it on social media and no one ever wants to talk about it, but we, you know, we as officers, we do die. And, you know, not every day is guaranteed. There's not a day you walk out there where your supervisor says, you guys will come back here safe and sound. I got it. No, they always say, be safe. Okay. If you need help, call for help because we all understand something can unfold especially in, a, in an era where you're being, we're being ambushed and shot in our police cars, which is happening more and more and more. So the, the, the thin blue line for me is a memorial. And it's a constant reminder that those before me have given something, have given the ultimate price for society to do something better. Um, that's why Back the Blue as an organization, when an officer has fallen, they'll come in and they will pay your mortgage off for your wife or your husband. They'll pay your car payments. They'll set aside money for your children for college. You know, those organizations really step in and really give that assistance because that's what it's for. It's for fallen officers. 
Now, the second thing for me, it, you know, in a small light, it is a pride thing. You know, many officers are very prideful about what they do. A lot of us do believe we do, we do a selfless service. You know, honestly, I always tell people, I like the money I make. You could pay me less and I would still do it. For me, I just like to help. I like to assist somebody in any way that I can. And a lot of officers feel that way. For them, it's a pride thing. They're very prideful in what they do. I don't know to me officers where you can tell them they're, you can, you know, talk bad about the profession. They don't get a little upset because a lot of people have lost friends to it. A lot of people have served with, with a lot of selflessness. Now, as far as the public goes, I think that back the blue and blue line, as far as like, you know, just, just the public in general, I think a lot of people just wanted something to take a stand with. I think that they, I don't, I hate saying counter protest, but in some senses it is counter protest. And I think that some of that counter protest is derived from not a place of anger, but a place of, I mean, I guess it is a little bit anger. I mean, you know, when you, when you look at some of the things I don't want to blame just Black Lives Matter, but dummy corps like it have kind of segued into is, you know, all cops are racist, all cops are bad. You know, obviously they use another word for ACAB, all cops are this and all cops are that, but it's always all cops are something negative. And a lot of those people who wave those blue flags that aren't officers, well, they have family that have died. They have family that have, that are serving. They have family that, you know, did serve, put their 30, 20, 25 years in. And for them, they want a way to stand with those officers and say, we support you. We hear that you guys are here to help. And we don't think you're all bad. And I think it's also a counter protest to those who say, well, all cops are racist. And, you know, you have the mom who says, well, my son's white and he's never, he serves in predominantly black area, never had a complaint in his entire life, knows them all by name, right? Knows everybody that beat by name. So I think that those are just kind of some of my thoughts on, on what back to blue and blue line kind of mean. Yeah, I, I think I would definitely agree that a lot of people kind of see or hear the rhetoric. And I mean, most of it really is social media. And I don't think that social media is representative of the public's opinion um, in the real world. But yeah, when you hear when you hear or see people saying that all cops are bad, everyone that's a cop is a racist and is just out here biding their time so they can get their shot at a minority or something like that. And then you have all these people that know police officers or people that have just had good encounters with police officers because that happens way more often than people think. I mean, most encounters between a police officer and a civilian are, I would say, are generally positive. More than 50%. It's not like every single person I come into contact with, I'm arresting them or yelling at them or anything like that. Some people genuinely call the police because they need help or they need someone to talk to or they need some opinions on how to mediate a situation with someone that they have in their life police officers come on to help. So I do think that a lot of people, you know, back to blue, they're, they, yeah, they're just showing support because maybe they've had a good experience with police officers. They have police officers in their family that they love and respect. And they know that in spite of what social media will have you believe, most police officers are just out here trying to help people, trying to do something good for the community. With that being said, obviously there are certain groups that, you know, might have more nefarious purposes and kind of co-op symbols and messages, which definitely doesn't help the perception. I know I've seen plenty of pictures of certain rallies, you know, where you might see Confederate flags, swastikas, and then you'll see like a thin blue line flag among them. Mm -hmm. But, and mm -hmm. obviously that doesn't help the perception. And then you have the people that say, oh yeah, you know, KKK, every police officer is secretly in the KKK, that kind of stuff. So, I mean, yeah, there's also people that are using it for bad purposes and they're kind of spreading a bad image. But I think for the most part, yeah, people just want to show their support. I know that if I didn't have Facebook or Twitter or anything, I would honestly probably have no idea that apparently everyone in the, in the country hates me for being a cop. You know, I get people drive up next to me at a stoplight and roll down the windows and say, oh, hey, thank you. Run up to me at the gas station when I fill up the cruiser near the end of the shift. Oh, hey, thanks for what you do. Um, you know, I have like kids waving for me and give them stickers asking to see the lights on the cruiser and everything. So I do think that um, a lot of the negativity is really based online. And I think that it's really just a, a loud minority. But yeah, that's just how I feel about the certain symbols and what's going on right now. And it's unfortunate because that the first thing that that narrative told me was that is the idea of Black Lives Matter more detrimental or more beneficial for either what you stand for or what you put your badge on for. 
So like with all the social media gripe and all the attention that it's getting, a lot of people are not necessarily matching these words to their faces and, and I guess spewing out all this animosity, whether it be right or wrong. Uh, my question to you guys is, is it more of a negative propensity that this the, the rhetoric that they put out? What's your perspective on Black Lives Matter in regards to your day-to-day life as an officer, so to speak? Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'll start. So, (laughs) you know, I I always say this. I think when it comes to police, when it comes to really anybody in this country, Mm -hmm. for most people, or I'm not going to say everybody, because obviously I I do believe that there are individuals who harbor uh, malice against other people for the color of their skin or for being, you know, homosexual or whatever it might be. But for most people in this country, if you put on a piece of paper, do Black Lives Matter, yes or no? Do Hispanic Lives Matter, yes or no? Do gay people matter, yes or no? They're going to circle yes every single time. Because most people, quite honestly, just don't care. They're just like, sure, yeah, you matter, why not? I don't know you, but okay. Yeah, you matter, that's fine. Most people just don't care. I mean, and most people most people don't not care enough to say you don't matter. Most people think, well, that's not right. They do matter. And in a society that is so mixed and I think this is the biggest part about America that we miss a lot of people have a lot of really mixed family so if you when you tell people black lives matter people are like yeah I know I know (laughs) I have a black brother I have black uncles I have you know my you know my 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 mother-in-law's black I mean people there's many people that are like yeah I know we get it I got it okay like okay I got it cool and they just don't care and I think that when Black Lives Matter first started, I was kind of on board because my guy's kind of neat, you know, yeah, like I agree, you know, Black Lives do matter and I support anybody's First Amendment right. So I always hope, I don't care if it's the most racist thing in the world or if it's the most holy thing in the world. If you're going to say it, you can say it. I don't care as long as you don't commit violence while you do it. And I think that when Black Lives Matter first started, I'm like, okay, that's neat. You know, there's a group of, you know, there's a group black people who feel strongly about some issues and they want to be heard. I, I support that. I think now it's starting to become detrimental though to the greater society. Not that I'm saying that BLM is adversarial to the American population or to police force, but when you're starting to see a lot of these riots, which I know aren't all BLM, but people are flying those banners, right? The same way they been mentioned earlier, you see a KKK rally and there's a couple of blue line flags in there and the police get blamed. Well, unfortunately, it, the rhetoric's the same. You know, when you see a riot and people are holding up Black Lives Matter and defund the police together jointly and there's burning buildings in the background, people start to then associate, well, maybe BLM, Atifa, these, on all these other dummy corps, these people are getting a little out of control. Mm-hmm. And I think that the narrative that is now influencing, which is more scary for me, greater politics, it's influencing governors, senators, congressman, president, like presidential candidates, it's influencing big business. These sentiments of implicit bias and critical race theory, these really big things that have potentials to bring us back to, quite honestly, segregation, I think are going to be detrimental and are detrimental. And then making an entire group of people adversarial against a police force and another, an armed force, which is set to protect you. I think that's the most dangerous because what you're telling black people, and this is what I, this is where I do kind of, you know, get at Black Lives Matter. What they're telling black people is this, comply, you die. That's what they're saying. So then the other thing you can do is fight. You can only fight the enemy after that, because compliance with the enemy means that they'll kill you, which is basically what I see as being told. But what I'm not seeing is Black Lives Matter saying, hey, we need to understand all the court cases like Miranda versus Arizona. We need to understand things like Prem v. Pennsylvania, things that law enforcement use every day that they know that are their rights. We need to understand our rights and how those things, I'm not seeing that. What I'm seeing is fight the police. If you comply, they'll kill you. And I think that narrative, that small narrative of Black Lives Matter, that's what's detrimental. Yeah, so I think that, yeah, I'm kind of on the same page there. So if you take the statement, Black Lives Matter, yes, I agree 100%. You know, and then um, Antifa, anti-fascism. Are you against fascism? Yes, of course. But then I think that you have these movements that, you know, Black Lives Matter. And now if you disagree or don't support every single thing that the Black Lives Matter movement does, all of a sudden, you no longer think that Black Lives Matter. 
Same thing with Antifa. Oh, if you don't support Antifa, then, well, if you're not Antifa, then you must be pro-fascism or something like that. I think that <laughs> people think that just because you have this, this name, all of a sudden you can do no wrong. And I think that in terms of Black Lives Matter, I do agree that Black Lives Matter, there are definitely instances where Black people have suffered, you know, life-ending consequences at the hands of the police. We can go, I guess we can go into great detail about whether or not the police were justified. But I mean, when you really look at it, I don't think that Black Lives Matter should be the, the name of organization if it's really solely based on ending racial discrimination against Black people at the hands of white citizens, like in the Trayvon Martin case and Ahmaud Arbery, or at the hands of police officers like George Floyd, Flannel Castile. Because I mean, yes, I definitely agree that Black Lives Matter, but even here, just in Columbus, the number of homicides we've had this year where the victims are Black, suspects are Black. Black Lives Matter will have you believe that the number one threat for a Black man in this country is dying at the hands of a police officer, and that's just 100% not true. So I think that, first of all, they should be a lot more accurate in the name of their organization, maybe end racial discrimination against Black people, because that would be the gist of what they're trying to get across. You know, if we're talking about all Black lives, and we're trying to figure out what's the biggest threat to Black lives in this country, then I don't think that police brutality is even in the top five, probably not even in the top 10 of issues. So I do think that um, especially also because Black Lives Matter is such a decentralized movement, you have someone over here, point A, saying, oh, this is the goal of the movement. And someone over here, point B, no, this is the goal. And there's not really, you know, a cohesive um, agreement between everyone that's yelling Black Lives Matter as to what their goal is, what their main message is. So I think that's really my problem with it. At its very core, yes, obviously I think the Black Lives Matter, I'm Black. My family is Black. I have Black friends, but at the same time, I don't think that, yeah, their message is that the biggest threat to Black people is dying at the hands of a white person, which the numbers, nothing statistically shows that that's the case. Right. And you brought up a good point that kind of fits with a lot of the topics that we've talked about today. Um, that's semantic overload. Um, so semantic overload, we've talked about it briefly in a previous episode, but I thought I'd bring it up here just in case, you know, anyone hadn't heard those episodes or hadn't heard of the term before. Semantic overload is just the idea that when, when one word or phrase has more than one meaning, obviously confusion is going to ensue. And so Black Lives Matter is a big example of that, right? There's the Black Lives Matter movement. There's the Black Lives Matter organization. And then, like you said, even within those, every member may have their own definition of what that means. We had talked about earlier, right? Do you just mean that Black lives matter or that you are aligning with one of those definitions that either the movement or the organization align with? Um, same with Antifa or anti-fascism. Um, and frankly, same with defund the police. With these numerous definitions going around, originally defund the police was, people were talking about abolish police. And then that shifted to be, well, no, we don't mean abolish because we don't want to co completely get rid of it. We mean defund. Well, we don't mean defund as in we don't want to pull all the funding away. We mean, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I understand that that is inevitable with language. Obviously, language evolves and words always have multiple meanings that arise over time. But you see these issues come up over time and it leads to confusion. It leads to further divide and it leads to people not having a baseline definition of what they're talking about with these really important issues. I wanted to touch on talking about the Black Lives Matter riots and protests and movement going on across the country. One thing that we've seen that has been fairly striking is that a number of Black police chiefs have actually been resigning in the wake of these protests, right? So you've got Dallas, you've got Seattle, you have all these Black police chiefs that have stepped down as a result of either the protests themselves or as a result of the public's outcry after the protests themselves, you know, the public calling on the police chiefs to handle things differently or the police departments to handle things differently. And I wanted to get your guys' thoughts on that, you know, just broadly, what do you think about these police officers resigning? And then do you think that, I mean, have you had any similar thoughts? Do you know anyone who has had similar thoughts, you know, either not necessarily a chief, but, you know, anyone in police? Do you, do you see the sentiment going around any? 
So I will say as a fairly new officer, a lot of the reactions I've had uh, meeting other officers on the street is, oh man, like this is a terrible time for you to become a police officer or something like that. And they'll be like, man, when, when I was down at the riots, you know, I, I definitely had my fair share of name calling and everything. But, you know, the way that they treated the black officers down there is just like horrible. I don't I don't know if I'd be strong enough to do it. Stuff like that. I think that especially online, going back to social media again, because that's really where you see a lot of this, is that on the one hand, we're saying that or they're saying that the police are racist and the police are out here killing black people. So it would seem to me that a logical solution to that would be to have more black police officers, more minority police officers, police officers that have maybe shared some of the life experiences as the people who the rest of the country thinks are being mistreated by the police. However, I think it's pretty safe to say that a lot of people view black police officers as sellouts, people that are brainwashed and black people right now are not really encouraged to become police officers. And I think that probably takes a toll. There's actually a police officer here in Columbus that just recently he quit. He was a pastor very active, very involved in the community, even outside of work. He was getting death threats and everything from people that knew him just because he was a very well-known officer. And he ended up quitting. He said that he didn't think it was worth it. Like it wasn't worth it, all that stuff. And I think that, you know, I don't think that I blame anyone who thinks that they need to maybe step away from the profession and do something else. Because the fact of the matter is, in spite of, you know, the one message that black people are being treated unfairly by the police, there doesn't really seem to be a whole lot of support for Black people who want to, you know, join a police force and try to bring about that change and make a difference. I don't really blame anyone for deciding that maybe this isn't what they want to do. Um, I think the people that are really to blame and the people that are really, you know, hurting their own cause are the people that decide that, you know, everyone is Black as a cop is a sellout. They don't really care about the community. I mean, if you think that all police are racist, it would seem to me that you would want non-racist people to become police, but it doesn't seem to be the case. And the interesting thing is, you know, after Mike Brown, uh, I think 2015, 2016-ish, a lot of departments were really criticized heavily for command structure and that a lot of the command structure wasn't uh, minority enough, basically. And a lot of departments worked really, really hard to diversify their command structure. So a lot of those com- a lot of those commanders were, I mean, they were from the the 90s, the you know the or the late 80s, and a lot of them had had their positions, and a lot of them were actually about to retire anyways. But when they did, or when they were when they were eventually moved on, a lot of those positions were filled by minority individuals and by minority women individuals, and a lot of those individuals got to make new policy, right? Um, I know, and they got to make new policy in regards to the community, to like minority communities, minority officers. And I know a lot of cities work really hard to hire more minority officers. They would go to the schools, they go to the colleges, and they worked really, really hard to make incentive programs as well. You know, like the cadet programs where you could basically shadow an officer or work around the station. And when you become you know, of age, I think the, the, I think the, like the national age is 21 to be a police officer. Th- then, you know, they would put you through the academy. You didn't even have to apply. You just be able to go through. And a lot of that was to get minority individuals into the department. So I think it's a shame to see a lot of those minority, you know, leaders stepping down, see a lot of those minority officers stepping down. And as far as it goes, as far as officers and sentiments of, you know, quitting, for me, I've noticed that amongst the older generation, you know, those who kind of already have their pension, uh, they've been in 20, 25, 15 years, they're kind of like, maybe I should get out before, you know, I don't want anything to happen to my pension. I don't really have a plan after this. I'm kind of old now. A lot of those guys have a sentiment of, you know, hey, maybe I should leave. And I understand, you know, their sentiment. Younger guys like me, I'm, I'm fine. I mean, I don't, I mean, I just adapt and roll with the punches and it is what it is. What it is. Right. <laughs> um, but yeah, I know for me, at least a lot of the older, a lot of the older officers, you know, black, white and what have you, a lot of them are leaving because they want to protect themselves. And that's unfortunate because I, I 100% agree that because the minority perspective is so jaded based off of what we're seeing in the media, that we would need these minority officers to take up these roles. And with the timeline of how you described it, it actually sounds right that, you know, the older generation during the you know Reagan, let it be all the way back from Reaganomics all the way to the crack epidemic through the 90s are now retiring 
and more minorities are starting to fulfill, uh, I guess, to fill in these positions. Now, specifically to both of you, would you say that you felt any personal backlash or from the Black community or from your friends as a whole, being in the position either before or during all this time that's happening now? Um, any interaction? Oh, absolutely. Really? Absolutely. No. Yeah, I mean, me personally, when I told some people I was going to the police academy, I immediately lost some friends. I immediately lost some family. I mean, even more so in 2020, you know, I've had to really, you know, kind of clean out my friends list. I, you know, there are a lot of people who were supposed to be friends and I'm on Facebook and I'm seeing a lot of like, you know, death to police and, you know, take abolish the police and a lot of just really, you know, really terrible anti-police stuff. And for me, you know, I definitely had to kind of learn to relinquish some of those individuals, whether it was before the academy, after the academy, more into 2020. I think the hardest thing though is policing sometimes in the black community a lot of people in the black community are very very critical of you as an officer if you're black especially if something happens like you know i have a white partner and if something happens where he gets in where he gets like a you know resisting of arrest or there's a shooting incident and emotions are high for some reason it seems that people will really latch on to you i mean i think it's because i'm familiar because one i i police where i grew up and two I think it's because we share something in common, which is we're both black. And, you know, I'll hear things like, this is who you work for. These are your masters. You're letting him stay on the ground. And you, you, you start to hear a lot of that Uncle Tom, you know, you're cracking the whip kind of sentiment. And, you know, honestly, it, sometimes it does hurt. And it's unfortunate that it's become that adversarial where I just can't be black and be for my community by being a police officer. No, it's seen as like a traitor. It's you're almost like in a traitor role. Like, hey, you switched up on teams, man. We really can't talk to you anymore, kind of thing. Yep. So I would say, um, in my in my experience, like with my friends and family, I think you know people that I'm close with, people that I talk to every day, I haven't really seen too much backlash against it. Like, I mean, you know, I had some people maybe ask me why, or you know, kind of probe a little deeper into you know my motivations for becoming a police officer. But I think that my close family and friends at least have been uh, pretty supportive. You know, take it to social media and take it to maybe people that I'm just acquaintances with. Yeah, I've seen the same exact thing on my Facebook and on Twitter. All cops should die or, you know, uh, if you're a cop, you're, you know, you suck and you're racist. And I think, yeah, it's just best to kind of distance yourself from those people. I mean, I have no problem just like, you know, unfriending or unfollowing someone because I feel like that's just a lot of extra negativity that I don't need in my life. And I feel like uh, if that person, you know, hasn't taken the time to maybe talk to me themselves or hear my perspective on it, you know, it's not really someone that I really want to deal with. Um, as far as on the street, it's kind of been mixed because policing in like, you know, some of the inner city areas, a lot of times the people that are calling the police for help, for assistance are black. So mm -hmm. when they show up, I've, I've definitely had people be like, oh man, like I'm so glad they sent you out here like, thanks for all your help and all this stuff. But, yeah, you know, on the other hand, I've also had people, man, you're out here. Why are you arresting black people, man? You're, you're black, too. You should be on my side, man. Hey, take off that badge and come with me. Like, you know, that kind of stuff. So I think, like, in terms of people that I'm really close with, I've had a lot of support. Kind of other people who, I don't know. I mean, there's some people who I don't even know if they know that I'm a police officer. And they say all this stuff. Maybe they would. Maybe they don't know any police officers, and maybe if they knew that I was one, it would maybe change their mind as to the type of person that becomes a police officer. But, you know, I really think that I'm an adult. My friends are adults. You should be able to conduct yourself in a manner like, you know, unlike an adult. So if you're out here saying ridiculous stuff like that, I'm not even going to waste my time trying to deal with you. Because, yeah, like I said, I don't really need any more negativity in my life. I kind of deal with enough of that, you know, and now I have a job where I deal with enough of that. So... I'm really glad you guys shared your perspectives on that. That was a question we got from a listener, actually. And so I'm sure she'll be ha very happy with the, with the, well, maybe not happy, but happy that you got to address <laughs> the question. You know, you guys gave some really, really good perspective on, on that one for sure. We wanted to give you guys as a thank you for coming on. Uh, we wanted to give you guys an opportunity to plug whatever you, you wanted to. Um, but before we did that, I had one final closing question that I wanted to pose to each of you that's a little broad, but just as one last opportunity for each of you to say what needs saying. And 
that's just what does being a police officer mean to you? Why are you a police officer? And if you had anything that you wanted to say to our listeners or the public or whoever about any of these topics that we've touched on, whether it's something that we've missed and we haven't touched on, or if there's something specific that we have talked about that you want to maybe give a specific point on or talk about a little more in depth, I wanted to give you both an opportunity to answer that and just go, you know, in as much or as little detail as you'd like, um, just to give your your final closing thoughts and to to really say what needs to be said. Um, yeah, okay. So I think that, you know, the main reason that I'd say I became a police officer is because I did want to help people. And I think that um, actually doing the job for a little bit now, people call the police all the time for everything. And some, sometimes, you know, I'll hear a run come through and I'll be like, oh man, that's like, that's kind of silly, but let's go over there and see how we can help them out. Sometimes people just want someone to talk to. Sometimes people just want you to talk to someone else on their behalf. Sometimes it is nonsense. Sometimes people do waste your time. But I think for me, the way that I'm able to kind of ignore a lot of the negativity that's coming my way and the way of other police officers is, you know, every time I go somewhere and I end up helping someone or someone when it's all said and done says, oh, thank you. I'm glad you came out. That means a lot more to me than some stranger online saying the complete opposite. Someone has really no idea. And I think a lot of people do just genuinely have no idea what police officers do. Hopefully, most people never have to call the police for anything. You know, maybe they get in a car accident or something like that, a minor car accident, police come out. I think most people who have had interactions with the police has probably been on, you know, for a traffic stop or something, you know, pretty silly or something minor. People don't really understand that there are a lot of people who the police are basically part of their everyday lives. And there are people, young, old, black, white, rich, poor, that need the police and like the police and call the police on a regular basis. Anyone that's listening, you know, and I would encourage people to spread the message, always do a ride along, get a perspective of what it is that police do. I think it would definitely be pretty eye opening. But yeah, other than that, I mean, you know, just spread positivity. That's just kind of how I'm living it. I like it. I like anything from you. You know, for me, uh, I became a police officer and as I've kind of served, it's um, maintained. Uh, you know, I, I really did it to make a difference. I did it to, you know, I didn't want to be the person, I used to be the person that would, um, you know, say, well, why would they do it that way? They should do it better. And one day I was like, you know, I'm becoming a police officer. I got out of the army and I was like, I'm become a police officer. And I became a police officer to not only make change in the community and to help the community, but to also be a part of the change for where I live and to reflect the ideals of what I think a police officer should be. Um, as I've continued my service, I've kind of, con I've continued with the same mentality. And really, I just kind of, I picked it up to really uh, help people. I like being involved in people's lives and I like giving them solutions. You know, some, like, he, uh, like Ben said, some things aren't really a police matter, but I can still give advice. I can still, you know, give resources. I can still assist where I can. And some people just need to vent. Some people need you to talk to people on their behalf. And I'm happy to do that as well. The thing I would say do is I would say, especially now more than ever, I would say try to approach, you know, as much as people say, police should walk the beat. I think that uh, it's just as much on citizens to kind of walk their precinct, you know, get to know your police officers. Uh, I know at least where I am, we're organized by districts. So, you know, if, or some places organized by precinct and some places organized differently, but generally the same individuals work the same area. So if you get to know those people, you will know your local police force, right? You'll know your district, you'll know your precinct officers. Um, do a ride along, right? Have those conversations. They don't have those conversations by way of, you know, a camera in somebody's face. No, like really have a conversation. Ask them, how's your day? Hey, what are you guys doing today? You know, really try to have an open dialogue with those with officers. I've had many conversations with police supporters. I've had a lot of conversations with uh, protesters and people who aren't exactly our biggest fan. And everybody's always walked away very happy and with a new understanding, honestly. And I think it's just very important that we start having 
those conversations because much as we all want change, you're not going to get it if we're not talking. So that's my suggestion. Awesome. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, you know, and that's, that's why we do this podcast, you know, like the title is say what needs saying for a reason. We think that these topics are important. We think that these conversations need to be had, you know, they're all touchy subjects. They're all things that lead to arguments and lead to disagreement. But at the end of the day, if we don't talk about it, then no one's going to know, no one's going to know. And the divide is going to be furthered and, and it's only going to make things worse. So yeah, thank, thank you both so much for coming on and for sharing your perspectives and for, for talking with us today. This was a phenomenal conversation and I'm really happy that we got to do it. Um, I know one of you had mentioned a podcast. I just wanted to, before we give this episode a close, I wanted to give you an opportunity to either one of you, if you have anything that you wish to plug just so that our listeners can hear it, you know, they could check out your podcast or if you have anything else um, that you wanted to make them aware of. Um, and if not, then that's fine too. But figured I'd give that that opportunity to you now and then we can wrap things up. Yeah, um, I do have a podcast. It's Views from the Arch. Um, anybody can find it on Anchor and a number of other websites where you find your podcast. It's mostly just a uh, political podcast with a couple other things such as video games and movies in there. Yeah, definitely check out that podcast if you have a chance. That's Views from the Arch. Uh, we use Anchor as well. And so, yeah, they should be everywhere that you get your podcasts, whether it's Spotify, Apple, Google, wherever. Um, Anything on your end, Ben, that you wanted to plug or bring awareness to? Um, nothing really personal, but um, I will say there's this uh, organization. It's called the Starfish Assignment. It's in Columbus, Ohio. They basically work with law enforcement officers to identify people within the community who might need help. And so they do things like they donate food and clothing and set up events with police officers you know, Christmas shopping and stuff like that. So, you know, maybe if people want to go check that out and donate, that's definitely a way to help. And it shows how law enforcement actually does take an interest in the community. So once again, it's called the Starfish Assignment. Sweet. Yeah. Thanks for, thanks for letting us know. Yeah. The Starfish Assignment, definitely check that out. If you've got a couple extra bucks, that about does it. That was a, a really good conversation. Brandon, did you have anything that you wanted to, to say before we close this up? I just want to say thank you so much that you guys even took the time out. I understand you guys, literally your jobs are daily. It's so stressful. And we greatly appreciate you just taking the time out to speak to us. I think you guys have done a lot more than you guys believe in regards to really sharing such a candid perspective about many of the topics that we touched upon. And I really hope that many more people hear this, but not necessarily hear it, but more like, more like internalize it because more than likely, this conversation has the ability to bridge a few, a few burned ones that, that that's happened over the couple past couple of months, or at least during COVID. So from my end, thank you so much. And from I guess say what needs saying, we really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for thanks for having me on. I I really enjoyed it myself. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was, that was a very good conversation. I love the opportunity. Thank you so much. All right. With that being said, we're out of here. Later, Zach. All right. Later. Thanks, guys. Yep. See you. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, please remember to like, subscribe, and leave us a five-star rating. Also, you can follow us on Twitter at Say What Needs and on Instagram and Facebook at Say What Needs Saying for live updates and sound bites from our actual podcast. Don't forget to continue the discussion. Thank you for listening. Thanks.